Hello, I'm Dr. John White, the Chief Medical Officer of WebMD, and you're listening to a special edition of Health Discovered we call Spotlight On. My goal is to bring you fascinating stories and unique perspectives while looking for the unexpected discoveries along the way. We also explore thought-provoking ideas. Today, we're taking things one step further with an up-close and personal conversation about the disparity that exists when it comes to cancer diagnosis and treatment. Today's spotlight is on multiple myeloma. Ever hear about it? It's a rare type of blood cancer that starts in your bone marrow, the spongy tissue inside your bones. You create too many plasma cells, a type of white blood cell, that eventually clump together to form tumors in various parts of the body. Symptoms can be pretty nonspecific at first. Back pain, fatigue, constipation, frequent infections. The journey to diagnosis can be a long one, and people of color, Blacks and Hispanics, are often diagnosed later in the course of their disease. They may not always get the same treatment as their white counterparts. This is despite the fact that it's twice as common in African Americans. Why does this occur? How do we address it? And even though multiple myeloma is rare, how do we more effectively diagnose and treat it? for all patients. To help us answer those questions, you'll hear from Dr. Craig Emmett Cole, a world-renowned multiple myeloma expert. He'll share what we need to do to improve diagnosis for everyone, including minority groups, why it's important to become a partner in your care, and just how effective current treatment options are. But first, I'll talk to Robert Brooks. It took a while for doctors to realize his back pain was likely a sign of myeloma. When he ultimately received his diagnosis, he quickly became an active participant in his care plan. Yet when he joined a support group for cancer, he was the only person of color there. Mr. Brooks, thanks for taking time today. Dr. White, thank you for inviting me. And I am so pleased uh, to talk on this topic. Now, your journey to multiple myeloma started with bone pain, right? Tell us what you were experiencing. So in 2017, I began to have some back pains while at work, and I couldn't figure out what it was. I thought it was just a back spasm. I thought since one of my management peers had had some back issues as well, and we were both advocate golfers, that, oh, well, I guess I had swung too hard. And although I didn't think much of chiropractors, I thought, hmm, I'll give it a try. And actually, the chiropractor started with regular exams, x-rays of the back, everything that you would think that would be appropriate for medicine. And at the end, what transpired was there was a cloudiness look around my L4. This is your lumbar spine. Lower lumbar spine. Mm -hmm. And he thought nothing of it. He said, ah, sometimes that happens. And it didn't look like there was any fractures, no problems. And so he began to do work on it. And my back got better. Golf some more. And it got worse. Golf some more. And it got to the point where it turned into sciatica. And then... 
I recognize this is more than just a back spasm. This is a real pain. Were you having any other symptoms? Were you having fatigue or maybe frequent infections? Anything else? Or was it really just the back pain? It was honestly just the back pain. Uh, Fatigue comes with the job. I was a frequent traveler. I traveled at least once every other week uh, for my business. And they were long travel days away from home. So fatigue seemed natural. So you're having this persistent back pain, and are you saying to yourself, something's not right here? Correct. I was out golfing in a corporate outing, and I scuffed the ground during one of my shots. And I didn't feel terrible, but I heard a funny noise, and it was coming from my back. And it was on the second hole. And since I had already gone to see the chiropractor and I knew I had some issues, I took in a leave and continued on. By the time I got midway through the course, around hole number 10, I no longer could bend over and pick the ball out of the hole. Then I knew something major was going on. I went back to my primary care doctor. He looked at me and he said, this something's just not right here. And he told me, here, I want to put you on my osteoporosis-style bone density um, table, which he had in his office. And I was negative off of his charts. He looked at me. I have been his patient for more than 20 years. And he said, this is really strange. You're an African-American, age 57. I've never seen this before. This back pain that you're continually having with no signs of osteoporosis. No signs, exactly. And I didn't have any signs of osteoporosis in my family history. So he rubbed his head. He looked at me kind of strange. And he said, I think I'm going to want to go have you go see an endocrinologist. Endocrine. Okay. And so I looked him in the eye and I said, Doc, I don't think so. Anything with Ologist at the end means that you're looking for some form of cancer, and I don't, I'm, I don't have any cancer. Well, there are other things too that they look for, especially in endocrine. So, so what happened? You go see the endocrinologist. No, he gave no. me the card, and I didn't go. <laughs> I didn't go. All right, um, and this is probably typical um, with you know men of color. We tend to want to be strong all on our own. And needless to say, I was seeing my doctor who was puzzled, and I just figured, well, this will go away. Well, it didn't. And about five months later, I was back to see him again with similar pains and similar issues. He asked me, hey, did you go see that endocrinologist? I said, no, doc. He looked at me and he said, you're going to need to. So I did. I got one scheduled. I went in, he ran a full panel of my blood, and with that panel of blood, came back uh, pointing at all the signals of multiple myeloma. Had you ever heard of multiple myeloma? I had not. And the only place I had even heard of people having blood diseases would be like leukemia. So I I had no idea, nothing. So you go into the doctor to talk about your lab results. What went on? Uh, I go in. 
They tell me you're going to need to have a bone marrow draw. I get the bone marrow draw and I go to the doctor who did the draw. And there's a long line in his office of people coming in after having tests. I waited my turn. I went into the room. He came in. He looked across at me as I was sitting on the table and he said, yes, you've got multiple myeloma. And he said, hold on a minute. And he walked out of the room. I'm now in shock. And he went out and got a brochure on multiple myeloma and handed it to me. And he said to me, you'll need to read this and you'll need to make some decisions on what kind of treatment you'll want. After you've read it, you can either come back and see me or you can, you know, get some second opinions, but you'll need to just make a decision because you're quite far along with multiple myeloma and it has affected um, some areas in your body. How'd you feel about that? I left his office, I got in my car, and I went into tears. I felt horrible. Not only because of the treatment I felt I didn't get that was maybe more caring. Um, I felt like maybe there should be people out there like me today talking about this so that people are aware of such a chronic disease and are aware possibly of things that they can do maybe to get earlier treatment or maybe to avoid it altogether. And you went into this mode where you told me you were going to take time and learn everything that you could about multiple myeloma. And despite the fact that he told you you needed to get care, you said to me, you weren't going to rush in <laughs> to anything. You were going to learn everything. Why is that? Because so many people will say, okay, doc, I'll do what you told me to do. And you're like, hold up. I got to read a little. So it seems like I immediately went to the internet and many of the things that are out there um, help direct me to who's the best in the industry. And um, so I decided I would go and talk back again to my primary. And he suggested that based on the findings from my blood work and from my bone marrow, he would recommend some sort of stem cell collection or even stem cell treatment. I did, however, look at specialists at U of M, at Henry Ford Hospital in Michigan, as well as at Carmanos in Michigan. And the reason why I selected Carmanos was because after going to see specialists at each of these hospitals, I felt the care and concern from Carmanos. I think it's because Carmanos has special training on how to interact with people of color by their doctors because there was fear involved. You basically were interviewing. <laughs> exactly. Weren't <laughs> exactly. you? Right. Exactly. But are you worried about timing, thinking, hey, you need to get started, as opposed to you're trying to find the best relationship with a doctor and have that what we call shared decision-making. I wasn't so concerned about the timing because none of the doctors had given me any timing on my condition. And looking back on it, I would say that was a blessing. 
So all of that said, my interviewing was looking for where was a caring facility and a doctor that would take on my case that would be able to put me into remission, keep me in remission, and give me the best chance. I found that in Dr. Jeffrey Zonder at Carmanos. Dr. Zonder was so caring. My wife was with me when we saw each of the doctors I went to see at each of the hospitals. And he not only put me at ease, he put her at ease. And so this doctor put us as a family in so much ease by immediately looking at my case, saying we need to do something now. You ultimately decided to enter a clinical trial. And we do know that people of color often don't participate to the same degree out of clinical trial, sometimes because of fear how they're going to be treated. And there is historical precedent to that. What made you decide, here you are, a man of color, saying, hey, I'm going to participate in a clinical trial? I have to start by saying the doctor gave me the feel of confidence. I didn't want to get into a clinical trial that was, let's say, an arm of no treatment versus an arm of treatment. And the clinical trial I got into was no such a thing. Both arms of the clinical trial would allow you to have full treatment for your multiple myeloma. What they were testing in this particular trial was the combination of drugs and their ability to keep you into a longer-term remission. You mentioned to me when we were chatting earlier, you never asked about life expectancy. You weren't interested in hearing about mortality. You were interested in hearing about living with multiple myeloma. So tell us how you're doing. So with my remission, which began in February of 2019, I have been doing just exceptional. And my life is full, active, and there is no reason other than having a fracture in my L4 um, that I can't do anything I want to do. I'm finding that I need to keep exercise, proper eating habits, and watching um, things that would cause me to slip or fall. Other than that, life is very full. We'll be back with more from Robert Brooks after a short break. And now, back to my conversation with Robert Brooks. You mentioned you joined a support group. Tell us about that and and what you saw within that support group. Well, Carmanos has a men's cancer support group. And men of all types of um, levels, whether they be survivors or recently diagnosed or going through treatment, come together. They talk about the conditions. They talk about the effects, the side effects in an open forum where there's no pressure one to another, and they can really see through each other's eyes the things they're going through. And I've formed such great friendships as well as an opportunity to have a voice among other gentlemen. Now, when I joined this group, 
I didn't see myself in the group because I was the only African-American. And I joined in 2020 just in the center of the pandemic. But how did it make you feel? There, there's no one else that looks like you. And we're talking about cancer. We know people of color get cancer. It made me feel like, why are other men of color not learning all they can from one another? And although I was very, very happy to be able to share my story and have others share their stories, and I found right here in my own community of West Bloomfield, I found that there are three other gentlemen that have a similar walk, similar story with multiple myeloma. Actually, I found one who's a young man who has multiple myeloma, who's African-American. However, the African-Americans actually would not join and stay with the support groups. I think there's somewhat of a feeling of not being inclusive in the discussions. I think there's a feeling of, I don't really want it to be known that I've got a disease. And you've been raising awareness of this, even within your own family, because you had said, I never heard of multiple myeloma. Your family members had not heard about it, but you've helped other family members to be screened. So I have a sister who is 14 months older than me. And after I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, she thought, wow, I've had falls, I've had fractures, and I constantly have osteoporosis battles. I said, you know, you should go over and see the endocrinologist that I saw. And she did. And the same one ran her panel. And they diagnosed her with MGUS. MGUS is smoldering myeloma. And so, oddly enough, as we talked more about it, and this is what in black families we probably don't do enough, is I talked to my mother about my situation and my sister's. And, you know, she shared with me, son, I had a bout of cancer at the time when you were born. And this was the first time I heard that from my mother. And I'm 60, almost 60 years old. And so I think sharing among families our genetics, as well as things we've gone through, maybe we can do things that, you know, prevent cancer, because there are lots of things you can do if, in fact, you know that you maybe have a higher possibility of having cancer. What do you want listeners to know about your journey with multiple myeloma? First of all, we need to have courage and conviction so that we can make meaningful change in those that are being diagnosed with cancer. In the case of multiple myeloma, I think that African-Americans who have the higher possibility of getting this type of cancer need to be screened regularly. Well, Mr. Brooks, I want to thank you for sharing your story, for reminding us the importance of being engaged with the clinicians and this concept of shared decision-making where we're participating in what type of care that we're going to receive. And I'm so glad that you're doing well in your journey and hope to speak with you again soon. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. 
Joining me now is Dr. Craig Cole. Dr. Cole is a board-certified hematologist at Michigan State University Breslin Cancer Center in Lansing and a world-renowned expert in multiple myeloma, as well as the director of clinical trials at Michigan State University. Dr. Cole, thanks for taking time today. And thank you so much for inviting me. One of the things that I was struck by in my conversation with Mr. Brooks is that he mentioned his choice of a treatment center was because their medical team had special training on how to interact with people of color. Why is that so important? And and what type of special training might that look like? I heard that, and I was really impressed that um, that cancer centers over the country are becoming more cognizant of the differences and the cultures that people walk in with. What we've, we're used to is a medical system that is really pretty unicultural. When people come in of different ethnicities and different cultures, they have to leave a lot of the their culture behind and kind of adapt to the culture of the medical establishment, quote unquote. And there's been a real push for um, cultural competency, which is you know a, a fun catchphrase, but it really is important, and it really means that. A, a center and its staff, uh, from you know the check-in people to the nurses to the physicians, to the research infrastructure, are aware that people come in with you know two cultures under their belt. You know the culture that they grew up with, that their parents had, the grandparents had, and the mainstream culture. And it really is making patients feel more comfortable by adapting to the culture that they come in with. But why is that important to their care? How does that impact outcomes? Does it really? We know that it it impacts um, clinical trial enrollment, that when people uh, feel comfortable, when they don't have to adapt to their culture, but they feel invited, they feel that they're, they're not straying too far away from home by having people that kind of understand that, yes, the culture that I, I work through and live through and have lived with my whole life is very matriarchal um, or is, is very nurse-based or is very family-based, that they don't have to leave that behind, that they can bring that in and they're welcomed in that way. You know, when you go to a cancer center and you're at that most vulnerable spot in your life, I mean, when you have cancer and people are talking about treatment options and clinical trials and putting IVs in and telling people you have to be here, you know, on our time, on our turf, using our terms, if there's anything that can make patients feel more accommodated, that can make them feel more welcoming, it's adapting to their culture, being culturally competent. A lot of uh, cancer centers understand that not only does that have patients feel better, does that make it more welcoming, but it also helps with clinical trial enrollment and patients being more compliant with their therapy because they feel more welcomed. But there's another part of the culture of medicine that I want to ask you about. And Mr. Brooks talked about how he basically decided to learn everything that he could. He interviewed different doctors. The hierarchy of medicine is is very much historically, I'm doctor, I tell you, you do it. Is that changing? And how do patients become shared decision makers? 
I love that question because, you know, in, in medical education, you know, we're definitely trying to change that hierarchy and that it's a partnership. We, you know, walk around and speak and live the mantra patients need to be involved in their decision-making. And it helps the provider. It helps the patient. It is more, again, inviting to patients and, and providers. And it's really beginning to work its way up. What does that look like, though? What does it look like for patients? Because they're not necessarily going to decide, I want this immunomodulator versus something else. But we're trying to encourage them to learn about options as well, including trials. So how does that conversation play out or, or what should patients be doing? The first thing is really goal setting and discussion. When I say to a patient, you know, you have multiple myeloma. And the next thing that I say is that we're going to talk about this over and over again. And my job is to have you know as much about this disease as I do. And we talk about it and repetition and repetition about, but it, the first thing is making sure the patient knows that they're empowered at the very get-go, that they know that this isn't going to be a hierarchy and that we're going to have a shared part. And it makes it so much more enjoyable and fun for the provider, for the patient. And I say that in three months, we'll be talking about myeloma like we would talk about sports teams. And if I haven't achieved that, then I'm not doing my job. Mr. Brooks sought out a clinical trial. But that's not the typical scenario that we see in people of color. So I have to push you. If we know that multiple myeloma disproportionately impacts people of color, why do we have so few people of color in clinical trials? It's a great question because it has so much history behind it and it has so much hope in front of it. A lot of the reasons why people of ethnicity are involved in clinical trials is history. I'm a doctor. My grandmother was a nurse. And as an African-American man, she really told us that, you know, that you have to be somewhat distrustful of the medical system, of the things that happened in, in the past, and that he can't have complete trust in it. She told me that when I was a kid. Fast forward you know, 20, 30 years. Here I am as a physician. And I realized when my doctor was asking me about a hypertension clinical trial, I was reluctant as a clinical trialist because in my brain, I still had that message that came from my grandmother. And so some of it is, is history and how the history of what happened in the past is embedded into our culture today. And so what we can't do is hide from that or say it didn't happen or say that, well, we're, we're different now. The important thing we need to do is acknowledge it and say, I understand, I tell my patients, I understand what happened in the past. And the great thing about now is that we have complete clarity of what happened in the past so that it can never happen again. And so it is overcoming that. That is, that is one piece of the puzzle of why we see the disparities in clinical trials. I want to take a step back because obviously in order to get people into clinical trials, we have to be able to diagnose them. And you and I chatted previously and you said, John, 
we got to improve screening. I remember you said to me, I wrote it down, just one more yellow top tube in the lab <laughs> that we need to do. So tell our listeners what you mean by that and, and what tests do you suggest that we need to be doing more often, perhaps in people of color as well? It's interesting because I talked to uh, one of my patients earlier today, and I told her that I was talking to you later today about screening, and she almost fell out of her chair. She said, please, please tell people to screen for this disease, because if someone would have screened me, I wouldn't have all these compression fractures and all these fractures in my back. And I, I told her, I'll definitely do that. And especially when you consider that people of color and specifically uh, people of African descent have twice the incidence of myeloma and twice the incidence of the precursor uh, disease, uh, MGUS, that we can screen for. Um, we can screen for MGUS and, and therefore help screen for patients that are at risk of having myeloma. People of ethnicity and and people of African descent have a you know twice as high of an incidence of having uh, multiple myeloma, and have a higher incidence of having the myeloma defining events such as renal failure, hypercalcemia, anemia. That screening any patient, but especially patients that are of African descent, um, your pretest probability is actually high of detecting it. And of course, if you can find a patient that has, you know, back pain, just doing those two simple tests will help screen it, rule it out, and you move on. So we do better screening. We do better treatment that's more equitable. Let's talk about that journey that Mr. Brooks talked about. He was very uplifting and positive, but you've been quoted before as saying that the myeloma journey can be very lonely. Yes. What, what does that mean? Yes, you know, when um, I always imagine um, a, a 80-year-old um, a woman, African-American woman at church, um, and she, you know, walks in with alopecia, uh, hair loss, and, and they say, what kind of cancer do you have? And she says, multiple myeloma. And then people would, you know, pause and I always worry that my patient will be unable to explain what that is. Because melanoma, you know, you can point to it. So, right, this, this is where they did the surgery. Breast cancer and lung cancer, people know about you know, lungs and colons and, and skin, of course. But to describe myeloma is, is a difficult thing. To say I have a cancer of the plasma cells, which take part in the immune system inside the bone marrow, which- You lost then... me at plasma cells. <laughs> <laughs> it, I mean, you need. I mean, you need a college biology four hundred four to be able to understand it. And so, and, and they've done studies about how patients have have felt lost because they're unable to really discuss their disease and discuss their journey because of the complexities of the treatment. And that's why it's so important to empower the patients, to educate the patients. We're physicians and we're educators, and it's just not medical students to educate, but to primarily you educate patients, and that gives the empowerment and makes it less lonely. What else can we do to empower patients? We actually have to educate the public about multiple myeloma. That plays a role as well. But are there other things that we can be doing? Definitely educating the public, and not just the lay public, but also physicians. 
to have this disease as a file in your file cabinet, in your brain. I've just heard this a few days ago that a patient that I had that was in a complete remission from their myeloma said their primary doctor said, well, that's a death sentence. And in these days, it's not. But why not? Why not? Remind our viewers why it's not a death sentence. What progress have we made? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> and the, just the, the past 15 years, there has been literally a revolution in myeloma that the biology that has been under investigation for decades has come to fruition in treatment, that no longer do we treat myeloma with chemotherapy but we use targeted therapies for myeloma that engage the immune system to destroy the disease, that engages the T-cells to destroy the disease, and that we know that myeloma is dependent upon those bone marrow stromal cells in order to survive, which is why you don't see it in the lung and in the skin, because they need that relationship in that microenvironment. And we found drugs to disturb that microenvironment so the myeloma cells can't survive in there. We haven't cured myeloma yet, but the targeted therapies that we have for myeloma have turned it into a chronic disease. So it's very exciting. I'm going to call you in two years. What's our conversation going to be then about multiple myeloma? I'm hoping that what we'll find is that we, in two years, that we'll, we will be enrolling more people of ethnicity and not only people with ethnicity, but also people of all ages on myeloma clinical trials to find that cure of the disease. Can you really cure a disease by doing clinical trials only in a subset of patients? You can't. You have to involve everyone. There's so many tools and so many things that are happening right now to make that a reality that we'll have more older people and more people of ethnicity involved in clinical trials to actually find that cure. And by having the conversations that we're having today, it's not just about being hopeful, but actually having a plan to get there. Dr. Cole, I want to thank you for taking the time today. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. And I want to thank all of you for listening to Health Discovered. I'm Dr. John White, Chief Medical Officer for WebMD, reminding you that better information leads to better health. Until next time.